Hey, could you turn that music down? It's time to talk to Greg about some science. If you could, please. Yeah, down, down, fade. Yeah, okay, thanks. I get permission. Okay. <laughs> we are recording. Well, Greg, once again, we get together to record some Iconocast broadcast stuff. Well, I want to welcome you to the show, and uh, thank you for agreeing to do this with me. I uh, really appreciate it. Wanted to ask you some questions since you are a working scientist, a professor, and you're married to a science teacher and all that about some of the misconceptions that people tend to have about how science works, what science means, what you can glean from you know, a Google, quick Google search on science if you can at all and um, get your feedback on that and get some helpful ideas people can use when they get a little bit confused about um, science. How's that? Sure. I think it's a good idea. I think it'll be fun. Uh, one thing I, I would start with is, is a question of what is a scientist? I actually encounter that fairly often. For example, I might be asked to sign, to consider signing a petition or a letter. Mm -hmm. Recently, I forgot what the letter was for, but it had to do with climate change. And it was a letter to somebody saying we must do something by a certain time. The question was, who do we have signed the letter? Like, can anybody call themselves a scientist and sign the letter? Or do they have to be like a university tenured professor in climate scientists, whatever? And we see this all in climate science denial. There's this famous letter that was signed by 500 or 5,000 scientists that said climate change isn't real. Right. And when you look through this, through the scientists in that letter, you find out a few things. First, the number of 500 is a tiny number. There are 10 million people employed as scientists in the United States, at least, narrowly defined. Second, most of them were retired or dead, like that's half of them were retired or dead, which, you know, if you're you still have your, an opinion, uh, if you're retired, uh, and it still might be a valid opinion, but it, it is like people really haven't been in it in 20 years. Right. And, and none of them are climate scientists, except for some of the dead ones. And so... It was just like, you can make a list of scientists to say anything if you get miscreants. And I mean, there's a Harvard professor, there was a Harvard professor, tenured professor who is, was convinced that UFOs were real. And there was another tenured professor at Harvard who was convinced that evolution wasn't real. He wasn't a, he wasn't a biologist, but he was still a tenured professor. He was an engineer, I think. Right. So I remember being at, a, you know, Rebecca Otto and Sean Otto, right? Right. One year when Sean won his, uh, for his book, The War in Science, won the Minnesota Book Award. So yeah. we were going to the ceremony and we had dinner with a bunch of people. So there was Sean and Rebecca and Amanda, who you mentioned and myself, and a couple of other people who are political activists or writers and stuff. And the question came up and I asked the people, how many people at this table can count themselves as scientists? And there were three or four people who had BAs in science. There were, Sean Dutton did, but he wrote a book on the war in science. So we're going to count him. Some people were actual scientists who've done actual research, science teachers. There's one person who had a degree in, a degree in, oh, I think it was English literature and his job was an investment banker. So one person at the table was not a scientist. Everybody else was. Although the definitions were by a broad definition. So anyway, I, my, I advocate using a broad definition of science so that more people can be counted that way. And when you do that, there's a lot of, there's millions and millions of scientists, like tens of millions of scientists in the United States. We're a large number. So like when I did my water sample examination of Phoenix canals and 
did an analysis on that for content of certain chemicals and so forth that had come from the runoff. Would that count as including me and the scientists while I was doing that? Or yeah, no. what do you mean by that? No, definitely not. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I, okay, so I, I, can't sign that, I can't sign that petition then? I was thinking about that exact question. I remember that you had done stuff like that. And I have other friends who have no, they don't have a degree in science, but they've done things that are like that. And, but I'm not sure that, I, to me, a definition of a scientist, someone who qualifies as a scientist legitimately, is someone who has two things. One is some kind of formal training in which you learn to do science. Right. Now, I don't know if what you did counts as that or not. I don't know where you draw the line, but certainly a degree, a BA in, in science would count for sure. Okay. A biology degree, a geology degree, that definitely counts. But I'm not sure what else counts. Um, and the second thing you have to have, I believe that science is a feature of our culture. It's a subset of our culture. Science is not a thing separate from culture. Science is an aspect of our culture that many people participate in. Other people don't. But our Western American culture includes scientists or science as a subset of that culture. And that means you think of science as the primary way of gaining and understanding knowledge about the natural world. And you accept that knowledge as more legitimate than any other form of knowledge. Even if it's not complete or you don't know things, you can't use your astrology chart or your necromancering or whatever else you call it to, to learn stuff about nature. You have to use science. Even if you're not, too, you yourself aren't doing it as your job. Right. And I think too, when we say nature, we'd probably expand on what the meaning of nature is, you know, natural world as opposed to supernatural world so it's not yes. just about what's outside you know in, in in the weather or anything like that or, or out in the sky right but it's as opposed to so people are part of nature absolutely it's nature as opposed to supernature right <laughs> which is or bizarro nature which is some other yeah yes, there that's go. right i've and been that's... in some supernature i can tell you right i, I hiked around some nice places right so that's, so, yeah, that's, so yeah, now, I, I don't know where we started with that, but that's what my example earlier was, you know, doing an experiment, but I didn't actually design that experiment. I just followed right. the path that the teacher was asking us to do somebody that can design an experiment and be able to defend it, you know, among peers, right. That, that would, that would certainly be among the qualifications I would say for a scientist. Yeah. And it's funny because as I was thinking about this earlier, based on, you know, you sent me an email suggesting some of these conversations, I was thinking about it. So I have a friend who is um, a couple of friends, but one friend in particular who works, I don't think she has a science degree. She's more of a, more of an engineer, but she is the engineer that's in charge of keeping all the scientific equipment running in a scientific research facility that's doing genetics. And she's been doing this for years. So if she wanted to call herself a scientist, I would completely go along with that. She might not. She might want to call herself an engineer. But she's been working on making the machines that count cells operate. And then that made me think that we want to use this other definition that we usually use the word STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Is that what they are? To include a larger number of people. But then you're including a lot of people who, if you think about what science means and is, aren't that. There's a lot of engineers, perhaps, or even mathematicians, I think, who really, they might not have scientific perspectives. They don't need them for their jobs. It's not part of their training, but others who do. If somebody is a creationist and they say they're a science, you check it out. 
Right. There. You check it out and see what if their degree is in um, civil engineering. <laughs> applied science, applied science, really is important. So we can't completely discount them. We just have to make sure that they only talk within their field. I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. And that point you made earlier, oh, no, we didn't make this earlier. We made it before we started the podcast. But you had pointed out, and I think we're going to put this as a graphic on our page, probably, that that, yeah. that recipe card from the UC Berkeley site that we'll put a link to on our page. But it's it's got this great graphic. Yeah. So it's a recipe card that says scientific method, one serving. And then it has <laughs> five steps. Ask a question, formulate a hypothesis, perform experiment, collect data, draw conclusions. If you look at a textbook, you'll see a section in chapter two or three, usually called the scientific method mm -hmm. or the circle of science or the cycle of science. And what I find interesting, and this is, that's what this is. I find it interesting that if you look at a physical science textbook and put it next to a biology textbook, the same section, you'll see two different versions of science. And, and neither of them is what scientists actually do, actual scientists. And so... You know, when, when you see, uh, was it Bohr, Niels Bohr, who said, the scientific method is something I apply when I've run out of ideas. <laughs> um, kind of hard to imagine Niels Bohr running out of ideas, but that right. pretty. But the fact that he makes a quote, that there's a quote where people remember that he said that, underscores that we have a cultural understanding of science. We understand that our view of it is flawed or mm -hmm. simplistic or something like that. And, and this this card has... A big circle, red, a big red mark across it, and it says "too simple!" exclamation point. And that's the point of this excellent website, by the way, um, on, on what science is and how to teach about science. There's several um, sections of that website. I'll definitely put it in um, the post. Oh um, yeah, they're really. It's a really good. It's a, I usually when I see this kind of thing, I, I'm cynical right away. I think oh, I was going to be another stupid thing, but this is a good thing. This is a really <laughs> smart website that gives really good perspectives on. I think it was designed for teaching teachers how to teach. Now, I think every one of us has run into a conversation on either Facebook or Twitter or some other social media where somebody's made a point and you counter that point and it, they make a statement, well, the science says, and, right. and say, well, no, I don't really think the science says that. I think the science says this. And then the first thing that they say is, show me a peer-reviewed study, you know? So you run out to Google, you find the first result that you can when you ask your question and you pull it up and you read the abstract, you take a look down at the bottom and see if you understand the stats just a little bit. And then you share it and say, see, proof. <laughs> right. That's satisfactory for making a point about um, a controversial topic or something where you disagree with somebody. Have you just proved to that person that you're talking with, whatever your, whatever your case is, what are some of the things that we're missing out in, in that process? Well, actually, actually, what you just described is a lot better than what you usually get. <laughs> you actually found a peer-reviewed paper in that example. Usually it's just some website that says something and the website mm -hmm. might refer to science. So I say, the science is clear, blah, blah, blah. And you prove it. You say, prove it. So I go find someone on the website that says, the science is clear, blah, blah, blah. And I say, see, but it still wasn't a peer-reviewed paper. And it might've referred to a peer-reviewed paper, but it isn't an actual peer-reviewed paper. So, right. and even then, yeah. So having one paper, First of all, do you know what it really says? Can you really interpret it and understand it? Quite possibly. It depends on your own background and experience and how clearly the paper's written. A lot of peer-reviewed papers are not written to be comprehended by anybody, not even no. regular scientists, scientists in that field or anyone else. Whether or not a paper is considered acceptable 
is usually that judgment is almost never passed by somebody who has any clues to how to write anything. So people who can't put two words together to make a sentence are deciding whether it's an adequate paper a lot of times. So you, you can't actually use a peer-reviewed literature um, that, that easily, but put a misconception. To me, misconceptions are often the, the way into these kind of ideas. Um, right. Somebody said once on the internet, and they were wrong, and I saw them do it. They said, um, that, con- that thing you're saying is not true because there is no double-blind studies demonstrating it. It had, and uh, double-blind studies are a way of testing pharmaceuticals or medical treatments. Right. That is all there for. They do nothing right. other than that. I mean, a vaccine, uh, a surgical treatment, possibly pharmaceutical treatment. That's what they're for. Double-blind studies don't exist outside the world of medical research. And for a lot of medical research, not all medical research involves double-blind studies. Um, no, ethically, you sometimes can't. Well, you can't. But the point is, it's only how some scientists done it. And when I saw the person referring to it, they were talking about something in astronomy or something. It was not medicine. No, <laughs> there are all these areas of science where there's just no way to do a double-blind study. I'm not telling Venus that its orbit is altered by orbit of Mercury or something like that, and the gravity of Mercury. Right. So, so in that sense, it may be double blind. I don't know. Mercury well, just doesn't know what's affecting its orbit. It, it, it double, no, in order for it to double blind, you'd have to have someone making a measurement uh-huh. that they don't know what the measurement they're making is for. Right. Okay. And you can't do that with measuring a planet. But you don't need to because the reason why we have double blind is double blind experiments are solving a problem that emerges when Daddy Warbucks is trying to make a pill to sell every person in the world. And to test it, you have to do something that's expensive and only you can do. Only the people testing the drug can test the drug. No one else can test the drug because no one else has the drug. Okay. So they therefore have to use an experimental method is internally hyperethical and hard to mess up. When you want to measure the movement of mercury, you just measure it. And then someone else says, I'm going to measure it too from a competing lab and scientists are a little bit competitive. I found out it's slightly wrong. And then the third person comes along and says, you're both wrong. The terminals are dirty. I did it again and I cleaned the batteries up first. And, and eventually you get enough people measuring it that they come to a consensus and they decide what the measurement is. You can't do that with drug, with drug trials. There's no way to come to cross disciplinary or cross laboratory or cross university or cross study group consensus about the effects of a drug that only one person has because they just invented it. So double blind studies is not the the gold standard of science. It's a kludge to fix the fact that some scientific research requires extremely super careful ethical oversight and oversight because of biases that are built in because of placebo effect. It has to be done that way. It's, 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 It's to solve the human, the flaws of human nature and observation that exists in all science but that are especially important and even deadly in that kind of research that are otherwise hard to solve. With regular scientific research, we solve that problem by having replicating results. And you might ask, do we ever actually replicate results? (laughs) There are some fields you can't replicate results in. It's hard to, you know, I find, I dig a bronze age, you know, site and I just find the association between a certain technology of making bronze and a certain decorative motif. And I say, this is a, this is a natural line that has a secret way of making bronze. Well, you're going to have to dig, dig a very similar site and do similar science on that to get a replicate. 
it's not going to be possible because the site I've dug is completely unique, you know, so you can't replicate it. Another case might be like the Denisovans where they've only found a few sites where there's evidence that there were Denisovans. Right. And you can't just go to another cave and, and be guaranteed that you're going to find more skeletons than are them. Right. So you, yeah. so you, can, you can kind of do parallel research and kind of replicate things in many areas. But a bench science where you have, you know, chemicals and reagents and substances on a bench, you can replicate that. And, you know, that's where replication comes in handy. That's one of the big fallacies I see is people claiming that a certain scientific method that they learned with science, if, if you're not doing that, then you're not really doing real science. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm not a practicing science. You can kind of shoot this down. If you're shooting over a link that you get from Google, do I have the ability to know whether or not study actually answers the question that's being argued? Do I know whether or not that is something that, you know, I haven't done a literature review for it or, you know, to know whether or not that um, study has been um, reflective of the consensus of the science or right. if it's been refracted. You know, so there's a lot more to it than a single paper. And also what does peer review actually mean? Does it mean that three people have read it and say that science is perfect or that it actually, the abstract and the body and the stats actually say what they say they're supposed to say, but does it mean that it's actually proven? Yeah, so that, that actually varies a lot by the field to mm -hmm. what field it is. Because peer reviewing is a little bit of a gatekeeping sometimes. Um, so it's interesting because different journals have different kinds of peer review or different ways they do it. And some journals have such little space that they will, any little thing goes wrong in peer review, they don't publish it. And so your paper might've been pretty good paper. It might have a finding that's important, but you, the first couple of places you send it, it doesn't get in. Mm -hmm. And then there are paper, there are, there are journals that are more open and publish a lot of things and that they're often looked at as like lesser journals. That, that's really isn't often true because quite a bit of really good and important research gets published in those lesser journals, so-called lesser journals. Peer review does not mean it's perfect. And a lot of stuff is not perfect and we don't understand it, but some of it doesn't fit the, the thinking of the small number of people that review journals and review articles in a particular journal. And then, and this is the worst part, if you, if you have a, a finding that's really good and you publish it in science or nature, two of the top journals, then another lab has the same result. They can't get it and publish in nature or science because they already oh. did it. Uniqueness yeah. is a, it's actually listed as one of the things that we look at before we let you publish your paper in our journal is, is it unique and newsworthy? And if it's a replication, it's not, period. So the whole idea that we, I just said before that, oh, science does its work so well because it replicates. Well, no, it actually doesn't. Because if you write the same, if you do the same research, you're not going to get it published that easily. So we actually have a self-generating problem where we discourage replication. To nature before, and then Elsevier, or how do you pronounce that, that other big publishing Elsevier, house? Elsevier, yeah. Elsevier, yeah. yeah. They, they say, well, that was already published in nature. We're not interested because. <laughs> right. So you know. it, and th there are ways to get stuff out that's replicated. But what you don't see is in the background, depending on, on, the, on, the, on what you're doing, you might have a, a procedure that has 15 steps and every step is a little bit tricky. And when you run that procedure, you don't get, you get a garbage result and you know it's a garbage result because it's impossible to make sense of it. And you run it 11 times and you get a garbage result seven times. They're not bad. They're not showing you're wrong. 
They're just showing you that it's a difficult, tricky process that breaks halfway through most of the time. And then you, you get it through only a few times. It's usually your last few times you get it to work. And then you publish that. Um, I would really, I really think replicating that kind of research is really important because it is possible, I think, to come up with a result that is spurious and looks good. So, I mean, if I was in charge of the budget of the United States, I would definitely put a lot of money into building research facilities that did nothing but replicate bench science. So you get your research, you get it published, you get it through publication, and then you send it in and they say, okay, we're gonna, and you send your notes and you send your, your manual, your lab manual that was followed to make that result. And then the scientist, the government scientist in the giant research facility in Kansas, and I would definitely put it in the Dakotas or Nebraska maybe, because a lot of Democrats have moved there. <laughs> so anyway, so one is a flip a congressional district while we're funding, so, you know, like they putting, you know, space center. Yeah, yeah. You got to spread it around anyway. Um, uh, and just have that team just taking stuff in, reviewing it, sending it back, saying, we can't replicate this. This is bogus methodology. Or if it's good methodology, running with it and trying to get the results and sending back a report saying we've discovered this and it wouldn't just be replicating, it would be learning more stuff. So, so no, that, that abstract you found. So I'll often encounter the following situation. Somebody sends me an article from the newspaper that says, so-and-so has proven that climate change isn't real or isn't as bad as we thought or whatever. Is this for real? And my first answer is no, I know it's not for real because I know that climate change is for real. I have a pretty sophisticated and, and detailed model in my mind of what climate systems are and what climate change is. And if you show me something that completely defeats that, I'm going to tell you it's wrong because I know that I'm right. Mm-hmm. Now, the response to that is you're not a scientist because one fact can destroy a whole theory. And the answer is when I have a theory this solid, you will not destroy it with one fact. I'm sorry. You were, you were given something that was a spurious finding or they've misrepresented something or you misunderstood it or the newspaper article got it wrong. Was it Forbes or Wall Street Journal? They probably got it wrong, okay, <laughs> uh, in a biased way. You saw something that was badly done, mistake, intentionally me- messed up, biased or erroneous because my model of climate, now if you're, if you're right, not wrong, I'll change my model, but not because you told me in an email or a tweet that you saw this thing, okay, not gonna happen. But I will take that thing. I, won't, I don't actually come back and tell that to someone because that's the resu- response I get. I won't say this is bullshit because I can look at it and smell it. I won't right. say that out loud anymore. I used to, and then I usually get yelled at and it's just a waste of time. So what I do now is if I don't understand it personally that well, I have a handful of people on my Rolodex. I say, hey, famous scientist who does this research for a living, three or four of you, what do you think about this? And, what I'll, and I'll get back answers as to why this is what it means. And that's what I'll hand on to people. But sometimes to, the, the secret inside story here to answer your question precisely is often I get back, huh, I don't know. That's the first response. It's like, I don't see how this fits into this or let me think about that for a while. And then a little while later, you have a few other papers being sent back and forth. And finally, someone who knows everything comes along and says, this can't work because, and then they've got some reason, which I may not understand. And then I have to ask a few questions and finally everyone gets it. So actually that abstract you were talking about, you show up with and hand it over to someone that could actually lead to 20 or 30 emails between high, high, high level scientists trying to figure out what this means. And then they have an answer to that question, um, which may not be, 
unambiguous, but usually there's a pretty good answer to the question. So that's what actually happens quite often that you have. And now this is a problem. I, my rant about science these days, the kids these days of science, they don't know what they're doing. So I, I've, tra I've trained a lot of PhDs and helped them supervise a lot of master's degrees. I've seen a change in how things are done. It's really kind of, I don't like. When I did my PhD, I had to prove that I had, was a master of the field of study in an oral exam and a set of written exams. Mm -hmm. Then in my actual thesis, I had to demonstrate mastery of the very narrowly defined area that I was doing my research on. And then I had to write a bunch of stuff that would never, would ever be part of a, a typical peer reviewed paper because it was too much, too much background, too much detail, too many footnotes. So it had to be really rich in details. Now you get a PhD, you take, you write five papers and get it published and you're done. Mm. Okay. So there are people now, a, a really good example of this is the hypothesis for why humans became bipedal. If you read, if you do a literature search of that, you will find four or five times when someone said, hey, I know, and they published it in a peer-reviewed journal and the peer-reviewed journal accepts the peer-reviewed paper as a new, unique and new idea. And it's the same idea. Like every seven years, someone has the same exact idea and publishes it. Sure. Okay, same exact idea. And here's an example that I used recently in a class I was teaching in high school, a guest lecture. There's this phenomenon, I can't remember what it's called now, but if you take a, a bolt and you've got a wing nut and you're in zero G and you spin the wing nut, it unwinds itself off the bolt and spins in space. And then partway through flips around 90, 180 degrees, spins a while then flips around and spins a while and flips around and spins mm. a while until you get tired of it and take it off, you know, take, grab it. Grab you it. take a cell phone, look at your cell phone, it's oblong. I got this right. If you take the cell phone and spin it so that it is spinning like a knife blade that's been thrown, it will spin. If you take it and spin it the narrow way, going around the long axis, it will spin. But if you take it the long way, like you might flip a, a, a flapjack, it will spin a couple of times and twist and spin a couple of times and twist and spin a couple of times and twist. That'll only do that maybe twice until it hits the ground and then you get uh -huh. a cell phone. But if you're in outer space, it'll do it forever. Okay. So the Russians discovered this in the space setting many years ago. And they looked at it and said, holy crap, this means the earth is going to suddenly turn upside down and we all die. <laughs> Russian science absolutely sucks. The Russians cannot produce science because they never have had a democracy that lasted more than a few months. And the fact is you have to operate your science in a democratic environment. It doesn't work where you can literally line up the scientists who didn't get the rocket off the ground fast enough and literally execute them in front of the other scientists to get them to work harder. It does not work. And that's what they did for decades, okay? So they kept it secret. They have secrecy and they have stupidity mixed with secrecy, okay? Um, so it was kept secret. So finally somebody discovers it and they write a paper. They say, we've done a review of the literature and we see nothing like this in the literature. It's newly discovered. One of the sources that they referred to in their paper, just while talking about the math of how this works, I'll explain how it works in a minute, uh, is actually a reference to a, a monograph written in French in the 19th century, before the Civil War, antebellum era, but French, written in French, translated into English in the later half of the 19th century, well-known text that up until about 1960, everyone in engineering of a certain kind of engineering read. And in it, there's a chapter on this phenomenon. 
a chapter. So the people saying this is brand new are actually referencing the original source. So I give, I, I give mm -hmm. a little lecture, a little talk in a high school about how to be a scientist and how to be a scholar. I say, this is an example of people not being good scholars because they didn't read everything they referenced or they would have seen it. On the table of contents, they would have seen it. And, and they did not have a command of the literature. Okay. By the way, the reason this works, anything that has, it has a, a primary, secondary, and tertiary moment of inertia, like right. a sphere, all three are the same. So the earth will not spin upside down suddenly because it's a sphere. So we're fine. But the Russians didn't know that because they have bad science. Uh, but something that's square will have, you know, all the moments of inertia are the same. But if something has three moments of inertia with three different lengths, like a cell phone, the long one and the short one will be stable if they're the axis of spin. But if the third one, the intermediate one, will flop back and forth between the two axes. Wow. Which is just crazy. Well, you don't see yeah. the gravity because it goes on forever because it, just the air resistance was just enough. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that's an example of. Um, to get to, to get yourself certified as a high level thinker in a certain subfield, you actually don't have to go through that step of understanding the literature really, really well. And I think that that robs people of the ability to see what we're really looking at when someone comes up with that peer reviewed paper. So, um, you know, you need to have and one way to s fix that a little bit is to have more collaborative research. So five or six people are always looking at everything from different perspectives. And, they, and so between them, a, a scientist with, who's got a PhD in the last 15 years, in many fields is equal to one fourth or one fifth of a scientist from 20 years earlier when it comes to their understanding of the literature, the broad literature. They just don't ever get exposed to it. So it takes five science. Now, on the other, other hand, they're doing incredibly important detailed science. Yeah. And maybe you can't have that kind of breadth of understanding. Like maybe in the 1950s, the typical PhD understood biology and, and science, biology and physics and you know all the sciences equally. And then in the 1980s, they're only understanding a subfield of a subfield. And now, now, 50 years later, they're understanding one side of a molecule and not so much the other side of the molecule. You know, maybe that's the phenomenon that we're seeing. So we're not going to ever get that kind of eclectic wide understanding in this. That's a deficit we have, I think, in science right now. So we're going from the general naturalist that they had in the 16th, 17th centuries to where it slowly started specializing into undergroundology, which became geology, which became... And now we're getting even more specialized in every single right. Science. You said something a little bit ago about how, if, like, if somebody asks you a question and you're not quite sure what the answer is, you'll refer mm -hmm. to people that may. Right. And that's a really good point. And I know that I've asked you some questions. You you've responded saying I, I just don't have the expertise in that particular field to be able to answer that question. I appreciated that. You didn't just kind of spot off an answer off the top of your head because you're a scientist, right. so you should know all science. Right. Well, I used to subscribe to this newsletter called the the Big Think, and yeah. basically it would be a thing where um, somebody would ask a science question of a popular uh, science person mm -hmm. that was famous, tended to be physicists, and I know we make fun of physicists a lot, and we've got a physicist that's going to be on the show in the future. Who is a but person who is who's a person who's very, very serious and never, ever makes fun of anything, especially himself. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so this is Minchio Kaku, and I don't think he's going to sue us because he probably won't listen to the podcast. But somebody asked him, do you think that human evolution has stopped? Mm. Well, Minchio Kaku knows a lot about dark matter. He knows a lot about, you know, 
um, a lot of cosmological aspects of physics and so forth. But I don't think he really knows very much about um, how evolution works because his answer was basically that seems to be that evolution has stopped. Mm -hmm. So why do you think it is that um, people rely on the credentials of a scientist except a scientist being able to answer any question in science as if all scientists were all sciences were all kind of lumped together with the same type of thing. I, I don't know. I'd like to hear what you think about this too. I, I, I think that part of it is because of Carl Sagan, Mr. Science, mm-hmm. Bill Nye, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. I have all all four, I don't remember Mr. Science so well, but he probably did it too. But I've I've seen all three of those guys very publicly talking about things that are well outside their field. So um, Carl Sagan is a physicist. He's an astrophysicist. He's a cosmologist. And his specialty is in the atmosphere of Venus and planetary geology. So what's he talking about evolution on Earth for? Well, it turns out that he's a smart guy and the stuff he said about evolution in his famous Cosmos series, as I remember, pretty good. And I think that he's a science presenter in that stage. He's not a scientist talking about biology. He's a presenter talking about biology with a well-informed view and a lot of staff. Neil deGrasse Tyson, similarly, I think that he says stuff that is based on stuff he knows and he has a staff and his version of Cosmos and other things have, to the extent they go into areas that aren't his field. Right. uh, He is well-informed. But that's not the same thing as a scientist who's a physicist, let's say, just assuming that they know everything about any field and can talk about any field. But the fact that people, just regular people watching, you know, who are engaged, a lot of people are engaged in science and and that's why we're going to have, you know, probably dozens of listeners to this very podcast. Um, so people are interested in it. So they watch Cosmos and they, and they you know, read Neil deGrasse Tyson's books and so on. And they know that they're physicists and they know that they know everything because they can say everything about everything. And that's how mm-hmm. we learn. Now, Bill Nye is not even a scientist, but by the narrowest definition, he's an engineer. Right. But he's always talking about science and he actually generally gets it right. I mean, very right as far as I can tell. He's very good at describing these things. So... Um, I think that that gives people the understanding that a scientist is a scientist and understands science generally. And in particular, if they're physicists, they super understand everything generally. You know, uh, I think that's what gives, I think that's why that's, that's phenomenal. Now, I remember Mary Gell-Mann wrote a book called The Quark and the Jaguar. And mm-hmm. I, I remember in the preface, he says, I'm one of the smartest people in the world. And he says, I know 72 languages or whatever, you know, and he goes on and on about how smart he is. And I, I, I got halfway through that and I never finished reading the book. Cause I just like, I just didn't, I just didn't need to, I didn't need to read that. I didn't need to see that, but he, but it was a, an attempt at a unifying theory, unifying behavioral biology. That's where the Jaguar is and the standard model, which is the quarks. And I, who knows what he put in there. I, I'm not going to mention the names of any other scientists like this, but there is a living scientist who claims to be working on a way of explaining human, the human mind through this, with a standard model. Now, I have no doubt that you can use the standard, the standard model for listeners who don't already know that it's kind of, to me, that's kind of an obnoxious name, the standard model. It's like, right. it's only about one little thing that we can't even see. And has yeah. nothing to do with anything we ever experience, except it does help satellites convey cell phone text messages and memes. So it's finally 
quantum physics has a use. It helps our cell phones work. Um, and it will have a use when we make fusion energy and everything in between is like just theoretical, right? Anyway, I'm being a little funny here, but um, you know, I, I think that playing the human mind using quantum physics in a way that your explanation doesn't break quantum physics and says something about the human mind. But what the human mind is can easily exist without any neurons. Not easily, but it can. It doesn't require neurons. It doesn't require biology because the components of the human mind are a combination of experiential, some very, very basic biological functions that, that allow it to operate. So an AI machine, I have no doubt, an AI machine running on a standard computer will, will replicate a human mind when the computer gets big enough. There's no doubt in my mind that'll happen. So, and, and, and so when you explain the human mind in an AI machine and the human mind in a human using physics to explain neural processing, you have, you have set yourself up to explain this only part way. You know, the things that make the human mind the human mind don't come from the neurons. Some of them do, but there's lots that don't. So you can't build, in other words, the physics idea that you start with a quantum view of the world and keep adding and accreting and building and eventually come up with an explanation for a larger scale phenomenon, that's an assumption. It's a little bit like the evolution of psychology assumption. It's an assumption, it's a hypothesis. It's not the model that we scientists all accept is the way the world works. And almost certainly it's not the way the world works. So, but such physicists get away with it because they're physicists. <laughs> so is there a higher hierarchy of, you know, the sciences that um, are able to do that? You know, it's like physicists and chemists and you know, it's a hard science from, from like certain hard sciences all the way down to like social sciences or. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. There are definitely, um, it, it's, it's funny. A lot of this gets tied together, I think, with math and statistics and so on, numbers. Because mm -hmm. if you start off with, um, we interviewed Moriarty, right? The physicist from England. And yep. he told us that, and I had never heard this before, and I totally believe him, that there's like four different mathematical models for quantum physics. And when you get trained in PhD school, you basically get trained in one of them. And the four methods all end up with the same basic understanding and results, but they're different mathematical models and methods because it's, such a, it's a thing that we have to look at with math and there's more than one way to, to approach it. But it tells us, I think we know that quantum physics can only be understood with math. You can get right. an idea of it, you kind of get a vague idea of it, but you can't really do anything with those ideas without, it's a mathematical model thing, okay? Now let's do some social sciences. Um, you want to do a social science, you want to look about attributes of societies and of people and of groups and of individuals, put them together to understand the relationship between child rearing and criminality. Um, at some point, you're going to have some data and you're going to have some math because it's going to be statistics. So the math is there in the basics in physics. You can't understand it at the basic level without the math. You can't understand astronomy without the math. There's a lot of math and geology, but less. And even when we get to this social science, math comes in to help you understand to do, apply statistics to your data. So the fact that the math is fundamental and paramount and it's everything at the level of standard model, but it only, and when you're the social scientist doing this, you know, you don't actually need, to, need the math. All you have to do is be at an institution where they've got statisticians, you know? And you go there and you say, I have this data and I think I know this and I have an idea. And then they say, yeah, that's good. And this is not so good do it this way. And they help you, okay? Whereas with a physicist, you wake up in the morning doing the math in your head. Right. 
Okay, you have to be the mathematician. You certainly may get help from others, but you have to also be the mathematician. Whereas in social sciences, you don't. And that I think makes people look at social sciences and go, see, yeah, they're not really, you know, um, it's not pure math, therefore it's not pure science. So there's a hierarchy that exists. When you take a biology class in college or high school, the very, very first thing you do in terms of the sequence of understanding biology, not necessarily this textbook sequence, but it's usually chapter two or one in the textbook. The very first thing you do is chemistry. And the chemistry you're doing is actually physics. It's the way atoms interact. Right. Right. So you get your hydrogen bonds, your different kind of bonds down, because then you're then you can look at how molecules interact. So you can do your cell biology and your genetics requires molecules interacting. Okay. So at a very basic level, you need to do chemistry, which is really physics. And it's nice for a biology program to have people take their physics and their chemistry first. But if they don't, it doesn't matter. Because all it means is a teacher spending an extra 15 minutes covering this beginning of the year. So it isn't like it's at a, it, the deep understanding of predator-prey relationships on the Serengeti requires. So it's a false, uh, this hierarchy is like a false concept, I think. It's there in some ways. But then uh, you're right, it gives you this idea that we used to call, we used to call it physics envy, right? That physics are the real scientists and everybody else is the lesser scientists and the physicists really understand things. To me, I think there's two kinds of physicists. I know there's many kinds within the field, but you know, some of the, we all know a lot of the same physicists either in person or by reputation. And there are physicists who are the most humble, gracious people I've ever met. And then there's the ones that just believe that they understand things that you can't because you're not a physicist. And they can right. be nice people too. But when they get into that mode, it's like, excuse me, but you know, my PhD is a lot bigger than your PhD because all you had to do was the math. I had to go and live with pygmies for five years. You know, I mean, anyway, I think that it's, I think that there's, there's, um, there is a physics and there's a physics envy of people outside physics and there's a physics hubris that happens within the field, but it really is a personality difference and only a few physicists are really like that. Like it's kind of Freudian, doesn't it? Yes, it's very Freudian. But look at people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and, and Carl Sagan, who I mentioned, they don't really have that problem. Right. They do have the, I mean, they're always touting science is important. And scientists are like this to the rest of the world. We scientists are always saying, we are the ones that truly understand things and you don't. <laughs> and a lot of us, a lot of people do. And that, that's similar. Even, even Neil deGrasse Tyson is subject to having some fallacies in his thinking and his public pronouncements. Yes. So, like he, he was talking about one time, you know, that we should set up our society based on rationalism but then at the same time, with people asking him about philosophy, he'll say, well, philosophy isn't worth anything, but you can't have rationalism without philosophy. So, right. so he just discounts things that he needs to have. He feels like he's able to do that because he's a physicist. Apparently. Right. Yes, you're right. And that, that's true. That's, that's science hubris. And this is where I, you know, I go back to my belief, which is the more correct belief, I say, which is that science is a subset of our broader culture. And when going back to people being wrong on the, on the internet, you often see science defenders who aren't scientists, often they call themselves skeptics, who are saying that there's a difference between belief and scientific thinking. And that's because they're linking belief to the idea of belief in, in faith and they're linking faith to religion. There's a fam that famous experiment, which we did mention in our last podcast as an aside, but that's where you take a, a bowling ball on a chain and you, right. you touch your nose with it 
move it a centimeter or millimeter away, let go of it, it swings away and you do not move and it comes back and it doesn't hit you in the nose because it has slightly less distance each time it goes because of air resistance. Well, that person who's standing there not moving is not moving, is, is keeping still, not because of the mathematical equation, but because of their faith in their mathematical equation and their faith in the fact that, that they didn't move yeah. their body in some untoward way or that there's not a breeze coming from the other direction. They're, they're having faith in all the things that are gonna make them not break their nose. And there's a mathematical equation in there that they, that they believe in. I had asked you to take a look at this thread by Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. It had to do with the science standards in New Zealand. Intermixing of creationism, apparently, according to Dawkins, with the science standards in education in New Zealand, where the Maori people um, talked about how their mythology informs their approach to science. And so he was really angry that they were incorporating it. But to me, it kind of seemed like the mythology, like if you've read Joseph Campbell, you understand how important mythology is to teach your stories of your people. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing, it's, that it's creationist, that it's relying on the supernatural. Mythology is like the theme of a book. It's just a different way of telling a truth that's still a truth, right? Mm -hmm. And that you use that to gather ideas for how you formulate your questions when you're doing science. We are linguistic beings. Languages vary in really deep ways. Mm -hmm. So the famous example, I think given by Worf, I can't remember. If you're among, I think it's the Hopi, but it might be the Navajo. You're sitting there and a rabbit comes over. If you're like a Western Anglo-American and a rabbit comes over, someone says, look, there is a rabbit in English. But if you say this, if you're a Hopi person, I think it's Hopi, and you say it in that language, the rabbit comes over and you say, there is rabbitness among us. Okay. It's still a rabbit and it's still correct. Right. Right. It's not wrong. They're both just different ways of thinking about it. Now, what about personification or anthropomorphizing? I'm going to anthropomorphize something. That rabbit wanted to come over by us, or that rabbit didn't know we were here, or that rabbit had a, you know, whatever. Um, in Western science, in Western biology, which is Dawkins' field, it is really common to anthropomorphize genes or molecules or animals that are not humans or cells. Okay, it's really common to do that. That is so fundamentally wrong from a scientific point of view that scientists also train themselves to not do it. Yeah, so but it's, animals compete. It's or, right. It's very much part of the scientific tradition of how we yeah. think about these things and how we talk about these things. So some of the greatest work in, in genetics, genetic aspects of behavioral biology is written by Robert Trivers, for example, and read his stuff and he's anthropomorphizing the genes because it's how he describes them so another human being in his same culture would understand what the heck he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if Dawkins wants to remove your own mythology or your own culture from science, start there. Start with our Western mythologies, our Western conceptions, our Western ways of thinking, and don't let them into your science at all. Go back right. to everything you've ever written and done and remove it, because The Selfish Gene is a book with a title that anthropomorphizes genes. Boom, right there. So go back to that book, unpublish it, get a new title, rewrite the entire book send it out and then you can talk about the Maori. Great. 
Okay. Until then, you can't talk about them. And, and also, you don't know anything about them. <laughs> All you know is that it's a tribal people who have tattooed faces. Therefore, they can't possibly be thinking straight as scientists. That's all you know. It's racist. It's ethnocentric. It's uninformed. It's bad science. It's bad science communication. That's Richard Dawkins today. No one's going to listen to this podcast, right? I don't think Richard will. <laughs> yeah, it'll be well, just I, him listening I, to the podcast. Yeah. If you do, Richard, you know, we like you, but you are wrong in that one. Um, so a couple of other things that we talked about talking about. Uh, one of them was the whole thing with correlation and causation. Correlation, yeah. So among skeptics, not necessarily trained scientists, but among skeptics, there's this saying correlation doesn't give causation. And they seem to take that to mean that there's no value in correlation. But really, what is the point of a correlative study? Does it is right. it just get money for a grant or is there actually purposes in making correlations? Yeah, and I would even go a step farther and I've seen skeptics, I've seen people who are self-described skeptics. When we use the word skeptics, we mean a lot of different things. Literally yep. saying, because you have a correlation, it means there is not a connection I, because they take that too far. And part of it has to do with the word imply because in, in logic and math, imply is a very, very strong word. Mm -hmm. If A implies B, that means if you're going to get A, you're going to get B. Right. In English implies a very weak word. A implies B, ah, A is probably lying. A just applied B. Didn't really say B, just implied it. It's not true. Okay, but in math, logic, imply means A means B is true or something like that, okay? Um, so the original comment, correlation does not imply causation is correct correlation can happen and the causation between one variable and the next isn't implied by that. It's suggested by, it. but in English, English, we use the word implied and mean suggested. So that, that's causes a confusion among skeptics. And that's one of the problems we have with language, right? But yeah, I mean, why we do everything, you do that all the time. I mean, every, every, I, I promise you every mathematical statistical result you've ever looked at probably in which there's two variables early on in the process, somebody ran a correlation analysis on that. Well, you know, well, it's just the first thing you do. Positive study if you don't have a correlation. That's right. And yeah. and and the and the word correlation refers specifically to usually Pearson's R, which is a, a number you calculate a certain way. But as a concept, it doesn't necessarily mean that specific thing. And lots of lots of multivariable statistical analyses use similar math and similar underlying assumptions to just see if there's a if there's a these two number series that you're looking at, two or more number series you're looking at, likely explain each other in some way. That's it. And then beyond that, you need to then have, that's where you have to have your, your bigger thinking, you know, like uh, what is the cause and, and, and what is causing what? And when you have two variables, it's very easy to start off and fall into the trap of thinking, does variable X cause a variation in Y or does Y cause a variation in X? And it might be Z, and you don't know what Z is causing right. both. And, and, but that's actually another thing that I think is worth pointing out at this point is when you talk about numbers like this, what's really important is not the way I just said it is is X explaining the variation in Y. And two things about that: first, explaining the variation is actually what an awful lot of science is about. And I think people sometimes see the variation as the error bars around your numbers, but you know, the variation itself is what we're looking at a lot of times. You're trying to explain the variation. 
Um, and then the other thing is people will talk about the mathematical link in their model as causal, knowing oh. that that does not mean causal in nature. Right. Okay. Right. And, and I don't think you should do that. I think scientists should not do that, but it's technically correct. But it then leads to further confusion down the line. So you see that sometimes, especially when people are doing, especially in sciences where a lot of the data comes out of models. Mm -hmm. None of the data is observed, observed as often models. And people even call that observational data because it's what their computer gave them. So that gets confusing too. That can confuse people, but yeah. Topic that you wanted to bring up that kind of intrigued me. How does science work as a weapon of attacking science? Yes, we've already touched on that a little bit. Just the idea that, um, for example, you need to have double blind studies or it's not real. Um, that kind of thing. But the more direct common, and, and which is a fallacy, right? So I'm saying your science is bad because it's not double blind, but you know it wasn't supposed to be. But the most common form of that is when people say, you're saying this fact that global warming is anthropogenic, but every fact is subject to revision. One fact can come along and destroy the hypothesis. There's always alternative ways of thinking. So taking this kind of idea that we actually try to inculcate in our young students in grade school and you know middle school, that there's uncertainty and part of science is grappling with uncertainty, but it never eliminates it and blah, blah, blah. You know, you have to have, you know, facts can kill hypotheses and so on. And people get that part and then they then take it farther and, and, and sort of the, their model that they're working with is there are no immutable facts and all facts are equally at risk of being thrown out with a single finding. Or if you're as a scientist saying, this is something we're establishing as really being you know, true. There is no actual truth. So you really can't say that, therefore you're not really a scientist. Even though when scientists say that kind of thing, what they're really talking about is a very, very strong consensus. Right. You know, um, and, and, that, and that comes back to that point of, is this phenomenon being understood as how one thing that we observe causes variation in another thing that we observe? That's what you're really trying to do is find out what is causing the variation in this thing. And the obvious way to counter this weaponization of science is to put it in more practical terms. And this is what people often do. You have a set of symptoms. You've gone to the doctor because you're sick. You've got a set of symptoms. Now there's a scientific idea of what causes those symptoms. And there's this medical idea of what might fix that. Well, that could be completely wrong. Why would you accept it at all? It's just something a scientist said. Things scientists say can be completely wrong. Don't bother asking your doctor for a treatment or prescription because it could all be completely wrong. So the same exact arguments against climate change as being anthropogenic, real, and having certain likely effects, if you use that for your own decision-making in your own life, like I'm gonna turn on this road because I think that's where I'm going. I'm gonna stop at the red light because there might be cars coming. I'm gonna take this drug that will save my life. They say it will save my life, but I don't really know. You know when you apply it to those real life situations, um, people will very rarely have any trouble coming up with an understanding of what consensus is and what simple practical practical logic is and how to tell the difference between uh, an idea that is pretty firm versus an idea that is seriously at risk of being overthrown. They have no problem with that. Uh, I mean, we often see economists in their theory, especially humans are bad at making decisions. No, we're really good at most of these things and you can usually do it. It's only when things are really out of whack with our evolutionary past that you can't make decisions. Um, and that are accurate often. But when someone is applying these rigorous, overwrought, incorrect views of what science is to deny science, 
they very rarely use that logic in denying reasonably scientific or medical decisions or economic decisions or in their own life. Sure. Because that would hurt themselves. They would hurt themselves if they did that. It's like the idea of, you know, the famous um, trolley problem, right? You're on a bridge and there's somebody standing next to you. And you know, if you throw that person off the bridge onto the trolley tracks down below, the trolley will stop. They'll run him over and he'll be dead from the fall. But there were six workers down the way that you just saved their lives, right? Right. The logic there is that you would not make that decision because there's a strong ethical boundary or it'd be a very hard decision to make. The logical decision is to throw the person off the bridge, okay? That always leaves out the very pragmatic fact that is never mentioned in that question, but in your brain, you calculate it. That person might throw me off the bridge. <clears throat> exactly. How do I know yeah. I'm gonna throw them off the bridge? They might throw me off the bridge. Once I start doing it, they might throw me off the bridge. And that is the logical human answer that the human taking as an undergraduate in the economics class, taking the little survey so that the economists can have more data proving that people are stupid. They're actually making the correct decision. Don't throw the person off the track because they might throw you off the track. That's the correct answer. And like Spock would say, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And everybody here, the one. <laughs> right. So the logical thing to do is to throw the person off. But, but in real life, that person might throw you off. So the question is a stupid question. Right. So if you ask people a stupid question and you don't let them give the correct answer, then you're going to get, you're going to make the humans look like they don't know anything, that they're actually a little smarter than you think they are by a certain margin. So we're going to get a real physicist in here to talk to? A cosmologist type physicist. Can we say to our listeners who's going to be our next guest? Yeah, he's already agreed to be us. We might as well announce it. Yeah. Go ahead and answer them. Starts with a bang, written and podcast and and uh, presented by um actually a friend of the show he's been on before he's in seagull and he's going to be our guest we're going to record it on may the 4th be with us so look forward to that next show i think that'll be the next one that we record right definitely worth waiting for all right well that's iconocast again i just ask you to like and share rate and review and Bring it to other people so they can listen, and eventually we'll be able to get to a large enough audience where we can add some ads. But for right now, you're listening to it ad-free, so you can enjoy the whole thing. So let's just go ahead and um, bring in some music, and you can listen to that for a couple of seconds, and then I'll stop it. Mm-hmm. 